0: You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 130.
1: Exactly. How do you mean? There's a great future in plastics. Think about it. Will you think about it? Yes, I will. i said that's a deal.
0: Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife and conservation issues from all across the globe. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky, and you just heard one of the most well known movie quotes of all time from the film The Graduate. This film was released in 1967, and now, 50 years later, we are dealing with the impacts of more than half a century of accumulated plastic pollution. Today's guest, Marcus Erickson, founded an organization tasked with addressing the many pervasive threats that plastics pose to wildlife and ecosystems all around the globe. But first, some of our regular listeners may have noticed that we took a brief hiatus from releasing new episodes this past month. We are currently in the process of restructuring the way that we present the interviews that we share on this show, and we'll actually be rolling out a series of adjustments to the structure of the show over the course of the next several months. So don't worry, we aren't going anywhere, and there are lots of exciting new interviews planned for the coming weeks. But coming back to today's interview... The issue of plastic pollution in our oceans has been getting more and more attention recently, and the Five Gyres Institute has been at the forefront of this movement for almost a decade. This unique organization was launched back in 2008 with a research voyage across the Pacific Ocean, which was conducted on a small raft made out of over 15,000 plastic bottles, as well as a variety of other repurposed plastic materials.
1: My name is Marcus Erickson. I am the, the owner of the Five Gyres Institute and Leap Lab, two nonprofits dedicated to deprivation. Uh, five Gyres Institute, we began about 10 years ago studying the five oceanic gyres in the world's oceans and looking specifically at the impact of plastics. We've done about 20 expeditions, gone through each of the five subtropical gyres, including the Arctic, Antarctic, near the equator. And I've found this smog of microplastics everywhere. Now, our expeditions, our organization actually began with a, an adventure, a rafting voyage. So my wife, Anna Cummins, she and I, back in 2008, we built a raft out of 15,000 plastic bottles. We've called it junk and, and set sail. My wife's back on land, and we invited a sailor, Joel Pascoe, and he and I, we did the voyage Anna was our our land support, letting us know where the hurricanes were. Well, what might be a five-week trip turned out to be a three-month odyssey, drifting at about about a walking pace across the entire Pacific, and discovering what the impact is and the distribution of plastics along the way.
0: Super fascinating, yeah. I mean, it's 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 a really unique sort of <laughs> creation story for your organization for Five Gyres Institute. Um, I mean, I, I guess I kind of want to delve as a starting point. I kind of want to delve a little bit into, like, the inspiration for that. Like, what got you to that moment where you're like, yeah, I'm going to build this raft out of 15,000 plastic bottles and settle it across the ocean?
1: You know, it goes back to my experience in the in the first Gulf War. If you remember, you know, seeing on CNN those, those oil fires ablaze in the desert, I was one of the Marines on the ground in that war. And I remember sitting in a foxhole covered in drops of oil and talking to a marine next to me. And, and we had this crazy idea that if we survived the war, we would build a raft. Now, it took me 13 years to build that raft, and I did. Uh, we took 232 two-liter pop bottles, made a raft, and I had a friend drop me off in Lake Ontasca, Minnesota. And I spent five minutes rafting the entire Mississippi River on plastic bottle boat number one. And what I saw on that journey was an endless trail of trash flowing from you know from our land from the greatest watershed in the United States, which drains more than half the, of the US. All this trash flowing out to the Gulf of Mexico, out to sea. So I had that experience seeing all this all this garbage. I had been to the Gulf War, and around that same time I took a trip to Midway Atoll in the Pacific. Midway is one of the last Hawaiian islands. And I saw, you know, tons of trash washing ashore there, and I saw plastic pouring out of the chests of all these lace-on albatross. So I had seen war, I had seen ecological ecological damage, and I had seen other organisms being impacted. And it struck me that that something must be done. And that's what, why we began the Five Jars Institute. But I always stuck in the back of my head, you know, these rafting voyages. I love the adventure. but Then they get the world's attention, and they did. Our big junk raft um, was quite a quite a story.
0: Yeah, I mean it's 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 a very unusual adventure to undertake. And this organization that that you founded, the Five Gyres Institute. I mean, the name comes from. Well, maybe you should just tell people where the name comes from, right? I mean, because you talked a little bit about plastic pollution, but take it to that that next level, right? Where you are sure. talking about these five gyres and like sort of the the scale of the issue. Um, and and how you got from seeing pollution floating down the Mississippi to this much bigger picture issue of uh, plastic <clears throat> pollution in our oceans.
1: So I I had seen you know this unending trail of plastic trash going down the Mississippi River out to sea, and as I've traveled you know I've seen uh, I've seen images of trash in other rivers, and I've seen it personally elsewhere I've traveled to that all this. Junk is flowing out to sea. Now, we call the organization the Five Gyres Institute because what I know now is that these gyres, these natural current systems, for example, in the North, uh, North Atlantic, North Pacific, Northern Hemisphere, you have these two massive gyres. The entire North Pacific is spinning. A plastic bottle might leave Los Angeles. It's going to go to Japan and back in five to ten years, this big, giant, clockwise swirl. The same thing exists in the North Atlantic. A piece of trash from the coast of France will come close to the coast of Florida through the Caribbean and then loop back around. The Gulf Stream will take it up north over to Europe again in the same 5, 10-year loop. These giant current systems, these these swirling currents are capturing our trash that are leaving the world's rivers. So what I saw in the, in the Mississippi River is going out to the Gulf of Mexico, taken through the Gulf Stream, and joins a North Atlantic Subtropical Gyre. There's a North Pacific Gyre, a South Pacific, South Atlantic, and the Indian Ocean Gyre, these five massive gyres. So we called our organization the Five Gyres Institute. And it began with my experience of you know, being on the Mississippi River and seeing this, this unending trail of trash, and realizing that all the world's rivers are contributing to this problem of plastics, in the world's oceans. Now we have since traveled to, to all five gyres. In over 20 expeditions, we've seen each of the five subtropical gyres, the Arctic, the Antarctica, the equatorial regions. We've sailed through the Mediterranean, the um, the Great Lakes, and we have found the same thing. Everywhere we go, we find plastic pollution, small particles, large particles. It's like a a, a smog of small bits that permeate our waterways worldwide.
0: You are the research director of this organization that you co-founded, the Five Gyres Institute. And, you know, you're telling me about this junk raft, you know, this this journey you took that sort of launched the organization was obviously just a starting point. And, you know, you have visited all these other areas. And, I mean, you, you have this very sort of comprehensive perspective on the scale and nature of this issue. A lot of our listeners are very aware of this issue, but imagine someone who isn't maybe as familiar with the problem that we're addressing at this moment. Like, how would you respond to someone who says, like, okay, so what, right? There's a bunch of plastic in our ocean. Like, What's the impact? Like, why should we be so concerned about that?
1: If you think about the the distribution of, of plastic on our planet, first of all, um, we uh, we invented this polymer no more than I'd say 50, 60 years ago. It began being utilized um, you know, worldwide. We began seeing the first plastic bags and bottles and straws in the early 1970s. Now the proliferation of plastics and and developing you know middle class societies worldwide it's just ubiquitous. You see this stuff everywhere. So I studied the distribution and I found plastics. In all ocean basins and rivers and lakes. And just recently, about a, about a, a little more than a year ago, I went to, uh, to Dubai looking up plastics in the Gulf of Arabia. I met a veterinarian and he said, look, come with me in the desert. I want to show you something. We went 60 miles deep, deep in the desert. And he showed me a field of uh, – where there were a few camel skeletons little piles of white bones. We walked up to one. He pulled out a rib, handed one to me, and said, start digging. And we're digging with these camel ribs on this camel skeleton. We get to the middle of the chest, and this 40-pound mass of plastic bags comes out of this dead camel's chest. And his point was, there is a land impact of this trash also. So I understood that the global distribution isn't just floating bottles in the ocean. It's a... It, it, the the, the bits of trash that are fragmenting, they're blowing around. There's one study in Paris showed a fallout of microfibers and microparticles on rooftops. So we're seeing the, the ubiquity of this trash is everywhere. But does it matter? That's the big question. Does this really matter to, to civilization, this trash? Is it just going to settle to the ground and become a new geologic layer that we'll just sort of deal with? If you look at the ecological impacts and then the human health side of things, those are two huge con- concerns. The ecological, you know, 10 years ago, there was a one research paper that everyone referenced in the research world that said a little under 300 species were interacting with trash. Now that number, 10 years later, is over 1,200. These are species, individual species, that are either consuming or become entangled by our trash. Entanglement can create horrific issues. We've seen the limbs of marine mammals and sea turtles be torn off by tangled nets around their bodies. So there's a a sort of a moral issue there with lost fishing gear. But the single-use plastic we use on land, the cups, the bottles, the bags, styrofoam cups, we have found that those in our aquatic environment are shredding into smaller particles that are consumed by Billions of filter feeders every day. If you figure that the majority of the, of the ocean surface is passed through the bodies of filter feeding organisms, from jellyfish to baleen whales, taking in big gulps of water, and they filter out the plastics. And those plastics in the stomachs of, of marine life, they have the potential to release chemicals that were put on those plastics to begin with, plasticizers or release chemicals that they absorb. For example, in one small bit of plastic, you can find high levels of flame retardants, PCBs, DDT, other pesticides, industrial chemicals, all stick to plastic particles. To the point that a recent paper from a few scientists said we should call marine plastics a hazardous substance because of the toxic load that these particles carry. Now, we're finding that as organisms ingest microplastics, they can desorb those chemicals because inside of a fish or a, or a bird or, or, or a jellyfish or a sea cucumber, in their bodies, the pH is different, the temperature, gut surfactants, emulsifiers of, of, of fats, all these, these things make the gut environment different from the ocean environment, and that gut environment can pull those chemicals off of plastics. So what we're learning now, the frontier of science, is showing that there there is this global potential for population level impacts, and and it, it tells us that to, uh, to to err on the side of caution is is where we should be in terms of our policy and the production of plastics. Because we don't know the effects of this global uh, this global catastrophe. We're beginning to see um, the harm that can be caused.
0: It's interesting to me that we're sort of just now learning what the true impacts of <clears throat> injecting all of these plastics into, you know, not just marine ecosystems, but like you said, terrestrial ecosystems as well. You know, and another thing that to think about that I'm curious about is like connections with other issues, right? I mean, uh, there, there's a, a lot of other concerns that that we're dealing with regarding marine ecosystems, right? I mean, climate change first and foremost. Mm-hmm. I mean, are there connections here?
1: No, if you think of the the connections that the plastic pollution issue might have to other other big global impacts, you know, climate change is top of the list. Ocean acidification, I mean, they they are all related. You know, first thing that comes to mind is that. If you look at plastic production, eight percent of a barrel of oil, uh, a barrel of fossil fuels, I should say, is going to to plastics, mostly nat- natural gas. So there is the, the the whole issue of the exploitation of of old carbon, uh, buried carbon, in the form of fossil fuels, to make plastic in the first place. Um, and and once the the material gets made. We know that the plastic itself is a very long, um, uh, long carbon chain molecule that the Earth can't can't break down. So it, it doesn't uh, degrade in, in the natural cycles. It requires a sort of a, a technical sort of cycle, uh, a circular economy, to treat the material in a more respectful way. The the, the single-use disposable culture that we that we live in worldwide is that the major contributor. You have other kinds of plastic pollution coming from fishing nets, uh, industrial pellets, the raw material, raw feedstock for plastics, uh, textiles is one, durable goods, like car bumpers and computer housings, and then the single-use throwaways. What has the greatest impact and the greatest source of plastic flowing out to sea are those single use throwaways the bottles the bags the straws the cup lids the little sauce packets the, the thin film packaging and if you if you think about the the global distribution uh, it is not met head on with an with an equal amount of waste management and the goal, and the global distribution that doesn't come with the systems for efficient recovery so uh, I guess the point I'm getting at is that if you had to go to one sector, waste sector, it wouldn't be trying to address pellets or textiles or, or fishing gear first. I'd go to the single-use throwaways. And what's missing are the systems that can transform that throwaway culture to a more circular economy. So I think of, of you know, the, the global threats to marine ecosystems, you know, and, and I would include terrestrial as well, it has to be met by a, a major systems shift, what we call a, a, a design revolution, and that's going to take both, you know, innovative designs, but 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 giving those a fair marketplace to to compete, and then clearing the market of the things that we know just don't work. I mean, it makes no sense using a very persistent polymer um, that's designed to uh, to last in all environments. To last forever and use that for a product we use once and throw away. That illogical system has to end.
0: My follow up to that would be you know, where are we at in that process, right? Because, I mean, it it seems to me like there is some growing awareness about this issue. My wife came home from the grocery store yesterday and she had found plastic trash bags that are compostable, you know, so plastic made from biodegradable materials, not coming from fossil fuels. Um, we're starting to see states banning the use of plastic bags like at, at grocery stores. Is what you're talking about like like a, a much bigger shift or like is is this sort of, you know, small steps in the right direction or do we need to be thinking about this issue in a different way?
1: And as you can expect, uh, as you peel the layers of the onion away, you realize how complex these these issues are um, and, you know if you look at the, the marketplace today you are seeing some chips you're seeing more reusables uh, on the market you're seeing uh local policies to ban uh foam polystyrene to ban straws or require restaurants to ask instead of so giving you a straw automatically plastic bag bans you're seeing these happen you know across the across the country but what i've, I've observed. And this is happening on. If you expand from the local to the global, is a a divide between the the conservationists and and industry. If you think of the industries that make plastic, they've enjoyed a very steep sort of growth in in sales for the last 50, 60 years, an average of four percent a year growth, to the point where 1950s there was almost no plastic being made or used in the domestic markets. It's now over over 300 million tons of p- new plastic made each year, and a big chunk of that going to to packaging. So it's it's very profitable. And what what the industries that make plastic see is that if circular economies take off, and that is you know all plastic made were to get recycled and 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 reused, and the need for new plastic would be minimized and in the defense of of maintaining a need for a new plastic what the industry is really pushing worldwide worldwide is incineration and we're seeing that battle play out in southeast asia right now much of europe has moved towards incineration in the u.s not so much Uh, we still rely on landfilling and then moving trash uh, exporting it overseas but we're seeing this, this great divide between the conservationists that want to see source reduction of the most polluting plastics and a more circular economy versus the industry perspective where they want uh, no regulation on design, just have governments and taxpayers pay for recovery and then burn or bury it. So that's where I'm seeing the global conversation right now. Um, I'm in favor of source reduction I think they're problematic plastics no matter what recovery system you come up with the best system of waste management garbage cans in the world are not going to capture the straws the bags the bottles the bottle caps the cup lids and the thin film packaging so I think source reduction the problematic plastics is sort of where we where we have to go and that's a global conversation happening you know everywhere I think the, the, the ground zero right now is Southeast Asia. Because of the lack of, of, of formal waste management systems, there's a big push by conservation organizations to, to reduce the kinds of packaging used, while at the same time industry is there in full force pushing for those nations to take World Bank loans and build mass incinerators. So that is the struggle. Now what I see at the same time as this great divide happening It's a golden opportunity for a design revolution. There is is definitely a need for for companies to to work at gaining market share with the products that fit a circular economy. Paper straws, for example, or or reusable reusable bags. Uh, Bioplastics. And that's a whole other conversation about biodegradable kinds of plastics. And I'd love to tell you about one study we just did. Um, it's, it was two years in the making. We took 20 products made of bioplastic. Things like PLA, polylactic acid, or PHA, polyhydroxyalkanoate, both are kinds of kinds of bioplastics. PLA does not degrade in the ocean, whereas PHA will. We took 20 products, looked at their their, their product claims for degradation. Then took those products, we took one set and buried it in my compost bin for two years, and the other put it in a sunken milk crate uh, under a dock for two years. And we found that the PLA products, the corn cups, the, uh, the spudware, these are plastic spoons and forks made from hmm. potato starch, PLA products did not disappear in either environment in two years. Hmm. PHA in the in the ocean we had one for example one little beach toy a very thick plastic cut made from PHA and in 2 years in the ocean it was gone on land still there still my compost in the ocean it was gone so there there is some room for for bioplastics there's some greenwashing happening but there are some that could could work in some applications but there is the design revolution in action that can replace the uh, the systems and the public need for some of these these uh, these convenient products with something that's more sustainable.
0: Yeah, that that study you just mentioned is super fascinating because you know I I had no idea even that there was a difference, right? That that there were, like, these two different chemicals and, like, you know, when you go out and buy something that is made out of uh, bioplastic, that there are these two different foundational chemicals and that there is this important difference as far as how well they biodegrade, you know, specifically in an ocean environment, um, which is super important. Um, I mean, I guess I just wonder, like, how do you... It gets so complicated,
1: it becomes hard to figure out where to start.
0: Right. <laughs> and, and that's where,
1: you know, when, when I talk with the public, I simply ask, you know, what are you doing locally? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think about the big picture um, where if you look at the human population in twenty, thirty years from now, we're going to top 10 billion very soon. I'm sure in my lifetime I will see it. And there's a majority of the world moving to, to urban environments in the next few decades so if that is the trend. We're also seeing now a lot of talk about what resilient cities look like. And resilient cities, I mean, there are many themes in, in urban resilience, and it comes from energy production, food and water security, um, but also how how waste gets dealt with, material flows through these uh, uh, these urban centers. So if you think about about how we deal with with our material culture. And that's all. And that's metals and plastics and glass and paper and so forth. When we think about plastics, um, in a very local setting, how can we keep plastic in our local system if it's truly recyclable? And some of it is PET, for example. Your typical soda bottle is the most recyclable plastics. How can we keep the, the systems of of production, consumption, recovery, and remanufacture keep it local? And so there's, I'm seeing more conversations about that, and that's kind of like a a, a local action, but big systems thinking. So when I, when I think about you know how we move forward, locally getting involved in 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 the flow of plastic in your community to make it more circular, and even going hyper local, when you've got your grocery list and you go to the store, when I look at my list, I'm not looking at Just the product. I look at the packaging also and I think, do I want to buy this packaging? How does this, how does this get handled in my, in my community? Are we taking that glass? In some cases, a glass bottle be crushed, used in local road aggregate. Is that paper being composted? Is organic waste, is there a system to recover that and break it down someplace nearby? Is there a big composting facility? And the plastic, where is it going? And this is where I think there are a lot of unknowns. When I look at plastic packaging, I know that a lot of it is being collected. And where I live here in the West Coast, United States, is being exported. I don't like the idea of, of, the, of the plastics that I, that I used to consume going to China and being handled in ways that are, are – where, where environmental and, and worker uh, uh, health is less of a consideration – I don't want my plastic trash being used by or being handled in that that kind of situation. And that happens in much of the United States. We export a lot of plastic uh, to other countries because they don't don't have the kind of strict uh, environmental and worker safety considerations that we have. And that makes me think, you know, I don't want to buy packaging that has those kinds of ethical dilemmas associated with them. If you see what I'm getting at, I'm thinking of, you know, where our trash goes, and my and my part in that responsibility.
0: Yeah, and and you know, that's a really essential question. It actually is really fascinating to me that you mentioned that a lot of the plastic that we use ends up getting exported, right? Because that was sort of the question that I was formulating in my mind. Is like I hear bits and pieces of this, but you know, I, I feel like a, a lot of people have a lot of questions about you know, specifically plastic, like. You know, where I live in, in Boise, Idaho, like we have, uh, uh, you know, recycle collection. The information that 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 we have available is, you know, we can go to a website and there's a list of, you know, plastic, types of plastic that they they claim, you know, they collect in order to recycle. Um, but of course, you hear that a, a large percentage of this plastic, you know, ends up not actually being recycled um, because of the complexity and the cost involved in sorting um, and also certain types of plastics are more easy to to recycle than than others um, and then you have sort of like down cycling where like maybe it's, it's like you know melted down but it's used for like a different type of of product and it can't be sort of remade into the same product, which means that every time you buy that it's coming, you know, directly from fossil mm-hmm. fuels, um, instead of recycled material. <clears throat> so, I mean, it's like that, that information is not super easy to, to come by.
1: It is, it is very difficult to get, uh, that, that, that information. Um, some good information comes from the EPA that tracks, you know, what we as Americans produce and what we rec- we recover. And if you look at what we get back for recycling, from what we make, it's about nine point two percent. That I mean, if your child came home with a nine point two percent on a on, on a test, you'd think that there was something really failing in the system. Well, that's that's the case with with recycling. It is a a, a I would say there's a mythology, an American mythology about recycling. It's it's a, it's a good feel good strategy to tell people recycle. But if you follow the path of trash from from, from our hands as consumers in our homes to the recycle bin or to recycle center and where it goes from there. I you mean know, a lot of it's going to, um, uh, to, to secondary markets to, to become a commodity of waste um, that's often shipped overseas. What is recyclable, very little of it actually stays here in the US. And what is recycled, it might be your milk jug, um, it might be the PET, it's in the form of soda bottles typically. Um, but, but the majority of it is either sent overseas or sent to a landfill or incinerated. So the true recycling, to take a product and go from a bottle back to a bottle, it, it's almost a trivial amount of the plastic made that exists in a system like that. So it, it's very difficult to apply a circular economy to plastics. Not impossible, but it's very difficult. So I think when I, when I look at, at, at my shopping list, I try to eliminate plastics as much as possible because I know the circular economy does not exist. For metals, it largely does. I often go to, uh, to co-ops where I can bring my own packaging, bring my own my own uh, containers to refill. Um, but it's, it's not – I think it's not as easy as we think to take – a plastic product and make it to a plastic product again, especially for food for food grade plastics. It's almost almost doesn't happen in the US. There are a few occasions where it does, but to bring old plastic, clean it, well collect it, clean it, and remanufacture it back into new food grade plastic, almost doesn't happen. And this is all confounded by the fact that right now virgin plastic, brand new plastic, is cheaper than than recycled plastic. So the economics right now are not really panning out for for there being equal value or greater value to recycling over buying new material.
0: You know, I I think we've gotten to the the point in the conversation where I want to talk about big picture solutions. Um, I mean, it sounds like what you're saying is that, you know, sort of on an individual and on a local level, like people should be focused on just reducing the amount of plastic that they consume and that that is... Uh, a more important message than recycling, right? I mean, only nine yes. percent of the the plastic that you put in that recycle bin actually ends up um, being recycled and put into a recycled mm-hmm. product. Looking at at the scale of this much larger issue, right? And and I would sort of compare this to another really big picture global scale uh, issue that that we face, um, which is climate change. Right. And, you know, when a lot of people talk about climate change and sort of like the the approach towards addressing an issue like that because of the nature and scale of that issue is that it has to be addressed top down, not bottom up. Right. So, like, it's great to make these uh, sort of personal decisions to use less plastic. um, And that certainly has an impact on a local level. But if you want to address the big picture issue, right, I mean, you need to be thinking about like. How do we affect policy? How do we, uh, you know, uh, elect uh, government officials that are going to find a way to address this from a policy sure. perspective?
1: Well, I think what has to happen and is beginning to happen are international sort of agreements and benchmarks for for source reduction and responsibility around the the plastic pollution issue. There have been some recent research looking at. You know, how much trash is leaving land to the ocean? And that's a good measure of, you know, a nation's consumption habits, uh, their challenges with a, a rising middle class and a, and a desire for convenience. Also, it it, it sort of makes – it showcases a nation's uh, waste management system. So when you look at the bigger conversations happening, like just about two months ago at the uh, the UN Oceans event in New York – where a big conversation on plastics, there were national commitments to improve waste management, source reduce, whatever it took to reduce the measured output of trash from land to sea. So we're seeing that happen. And and like you said, you're right, it's gonna take a top down <clears throat> it's gonna take a top down approach to to remedy the situation. It's gonna be impossible to solve this by asking individuals to to stop using plastic bags or straws or, or, or say no to water bottles. It's not going to happen that way. Um, that's that's part of it. I should say that will happen locally. But globally, we have to see some top-down measures, and they are happening. We're seeing nations uh, commit. I think what, what we'd, we'd like to see is something akin to the Paris Accord, where you have these national commitments to, to big lofty goals to stop the flow of trash to sea. And that is going to to require uh, three things. I think it's a greater responsibility – a shared responsibility by governments, individuals, and industry. For The last 50 years, industry has been very effective at pushing responsibility onto individuals, taxpayers, and governments to manage waste and deflecting any regulation to design for recyclability – or to reduce the source of, of, of plastics to make throwaway products. That has to change, and it's beginning to change. For example, we discovered microbeads in the Great Lakes, our organization, uh, along with uh, SUNY Fredonia. We published a paper finding microbeads, these small plastic beads from, from facial scrubs, all across the Great Lakes. It took over 50 organizations across the U.S. and a few politicians to pressure companies like Procter & Gamble and, uh, and Johnson & Johnson to stop putting microbeads in their products. And in late 2015, President Obama signed the Microbead-Free Waters Act. So that w- – we could have gone the route to ask people to stop buying certain products that contain microbeads. But it took a top-down approach um, to, to make it happen. What that also did, that kind of leveled the playing field so you had all companies making products using microbeads to stop putting plastic microbeads in their products. So again, it's gonna take a top-down approach and share responsibility, the individual, government, but industry to step up and and rise to the challenge.
0: Awesome. And and I love the example that you just put forth of of the microbeads and, and how that legislation um, got passed as a result of that research. Um, that's, that strikes me as a really good example of, uh, you know, sort of the path forward towards, uh, uh you know, finding solutions to this issue. Um, I mean, I, I guess I wonder if there are any examples, I mean, it, you know, maybe it's sort of too early in, in the, the progress and development of sort of just our knowledge and awareness of this issue, but like, are there countries that are like really setting the example and like, you know, uh, uh, sort of doing this the right way? Or, um, you know, is there any, like, uh, big picture sort of, like, success story that we can look to and, you know, sort of use as a model forward?
1: I think so. I think if you look across the globe, you can see examples of of countries that are doing a great job to mitigate the, the, the way plastic is used. Rwanda, for example, has banned plastic bags. They'll actually confiscate plastic bags from your luggage in the airport. Um, in, in Scandinavia in 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 Denmark, Norway, Sweden, Germany, you're seeing uh, more systems of, of, of reuse and recovery. For example, uh, soda bottles will have small little hash marks on the side when you purchase it in the store and you can see how many times that plastic bottle has been reused in that form, the way we used to treat glass bottles in the U S cool. and, and then you see countries like, like Chile that have introduced, uh, extended producer responsibility bills that are unlike any in the world where industry is responsible for recovering a certain percent of their specific product and that's forcing industry to say okay if we have to take back you know half the soda bottles we sell let's make sure the soda bottles we can easily take them apart take the labels off maybe make the caps the labels and the bottle all the same polymer so we can shred it and re Manufactured new bottles. So it's with a good EPR bill, you get industry thinking about design. So these are some great examples around the world where we're seeing what I consider scalable solutions that can be adopted elsewhere in the planet. There's a lot of talk and a lot of movement happening on this issue. So I think in the next, the next 10 years you're going to see, uh, some changes being adopted by more and more countries.
0: Awesome. That's super cool to hear. And, uh, some really interesting ways that, that, uh, Countries are approaching this, and, and yeah, definitely a lot to learn from. So my last question is just, you know, what, what's sort of next for you? Uh, you know, what's on the horizon? Do you have, like, uh, additional adventures planned or uh, interesting uh, research projects uh, ongoing? Um, what's sort of on the horizon for you?
1: We do. So, so my wife and I founded Five Gyres 10 years ago. We, we still you know, work with the organization. It has grown. But now we're beginning a new one called uh, Leap Lab. It's going to behave like a, a science center, but more more progressive sort of programs to to move uh, the urban environment to be more resilient. And and in that in that sort of new and uh, this new nonprofit, we're looking at resilient cities and how we manage waste, building local circular economies. You know, plastic up. Uh, uh, we're not anti-plastic. It's great in technologies and safety equipment. Um, even the, half the space shuttle is plastic. But, but the single-use throwaway culture, it doesn't fit our local local economies. So I think creating more resilient sort of local economies using plastic in responsible ways what is what's next for us. But we're still at sea. And just this week, we secured a vessel uh, to sail around Indonesia in 2018. We're still operating globally, but thinking locally to build resilient, smarter cities. If we can do it here, we we really believe we can export these systems to other communities worldwide.
0: Fantastic. And, you know, I, I think that that is sort of the case for for a lot of different conservation issues is you have to sort of be you have to have your mind in both places. You have to be thinking about. Like I love how you uh, sort of phrase that, you know, the resiliency of local communities, but at the same time, be thinking about the impact you can have on these much larger global issues. So very cool, very cool to hear about these exciting new projects you have in the works. And thanks a lot for joining us on the show and sharing all this fascinating and important uh, information and research that you've been involved with.
1: My pleasure. I enjoyed the conversation.
0: Thank you. All right. That was our interview with Marcus Erickson. The co-founder and research director of the Five Gyres Institute. If you'd like to learn more about Marcus's research and conservation work with the Five Gyres Institute and also his new organization, Leap Lab, you can head over to the show notes page for this episode, which you'll find at wildlensinc.org slash EOC130. That's W-I-L-D-L-E-N-S-I-N-C.org slash EOC130. If you enjoyed this conversation, I'd encourage you to subscribe to the show if you haven't already. You can find the show in the iTunes Store or just about anywhere podcasts are distributed. If you want to help us reach new people with the unique interviews that we air, you can leave us an honest rating and review on iTunes. Just search for Eyes on Conservation in the iTunes Store or follow the link that's up on the show notes page. The Eyes on Conservation podcast is a production of Wild Lens. Today's episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Our theme music is by The Humidors.